Well, in the late 1960s, the Black Panthers and Malcolm X were making an influence in Milwaukee. Malcolm X had given some sermons there, and the Black Panther Party was having an influence on young black men in Milwaukee. And one of those black men in Milwaukee at that time was named Ron Greer. And as we have seen racial tensions in our nation recently, uh, these are not new. In the late 60s, there were also riots in cities throughout the United States and in Milwaukee. And many were influenced by what was going on. And Ron Greer, one of them, was learning from Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party that he would live under these conditions. White people don't infiltrate his space, and that he would not infiltrate their space. Ron enlisted in the Marines, and he continued to live by that code even in the Marines, and he got away with it for quite a long time. Until one day, a white officer laid his hands on Ron. Ron turned around, punched him in the face, and then in the throat. The officer keeled over backwards, knocked over a table, and Ron almost killed the man. That's not something you do in the military, just so you know. He was court-martialed. And he was sent to Fort Leavenworth to do time. There in Fort Leavenworth, he joined the Nation of Islam, changed his Christian name, labeled all white people swine, and spent most of his time in Fort Leavenworth in solitary confinement. Judgment. As we go through Amos, many of us have felt like we have been in that kind of hole. In that kind of judgment. This book is judging a nation and it does not use light words. Judging a nation for their corruption towards the vulnerable. Their broken justice system. The hedonism that they take on while other people suffer. Their spiritual apathy while worship services are full but there is no awe of the Lord. This book has made us wonder, is there any hope for Israel? Are they just stuck in this hole? If we're honest with each other, honest about our situation that we're facing right now as a nation, we wonder, are the better days of our nation behind us? Well, the division that we are facing as a nation, is it just crippling us that we cannot recover? Is the church simply irrelevant? Can it do anything in what we are facing? Today, we are going to see in this passage of Amos, our closing passage in this book, that no matter the judgment, no matter how bad it is, there is a restoration for the Lord's people. Again, no matter how bad the judgment, there is restoration for the Lord's people. Let's hear it for the last time 
in this series, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Please pay attention as I read the Lord's word. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of graves him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, please excuse me and maybe others uh, that are in the congregation that have gone through this for the past few months of our frustration towards you and maybe our glares. We have been beaten down for the past 11 weeks. This book has not been sunshines and rainbows and unicorns. And many of us have been waiting, at least I have been waiting, for 11 weeks to get to this. To get to this last passage that is so good. And if you haven't been joining us and you do not know, the Lord through this book has been going after Israel. He's been going after Israel because in their opulence, in their festivals, in their worship, they are using the oppressed for their own glory. They are suppressing people. They are enslaving people. They are not caring for the weak and the vulnerable in their society. And here comes a southern farmer, Amos, speaking the words of the Lord. And these are the kind of words that we've heard over the past 11 weeks. The days are coming when I will send a famine. The Lord says, I'll fix my eyes on them for evil, not good. They will fall, Israel, and never rise again. He calls Israel the cows of Bashan, specifically the women cows of Bashan. He says he hates their feasts. And then one, probably the most brutal, dead bodies thrown everywhere. These are the words that we have heard over the past 11 weeks. But hopefully, David and myself and Adam have communicated this judgment sounds harsh, but the Lord's judgment is a sign of his care. The Lord cares about those that are receiving injustice. The Lord wants to right wrongs. The Lord hears the cries of the oppressed. The Lord doesn't leave people in their sin, but he calls them to seek him and live. Hopefully, we've communicated. God's justice 
is a sign of his mercy and his care. And the Lord will not let us continue in our sin without his correction through his love. As much as I say that, we have communicated that preaching this passage, especially with the weight that we feel in our culture right now, has been a lot. But hopefully, as we have been isolated, as we've worn masks, as we've seen tensions around us, as we've gone through an election, it might have given us a time to contemplate. How have we fallen short as the church? Where have we lived like Israel in this time? And the hope is that this word might have been able to wake us up. You remember from the very beginning, as we started the book of Amos, the Lord roared from Zion. And I wondered if we would actually listen to even the roar of the Lord. Or we would put all these barriers up. When we hear the word justice, we would blow it off. When we might have been convicted over things that we are doing, we would just get defensive. That we would put up barrier after barrier rather than letting the word of the Lord pierce our hearts and do surgery upon us. Now I know I, I kind of divide people, it's a straw man at times, but I'll try this. I think some of us are optimists. Maybe you can label yourself the optimist among us, maybe the optimist in your household, the, the glass half full versus the glass half empty kind of person. And when you go through the book of Amos or you hear this kind of news, you say, why so glum, preacher? Give us a good message. Cheer us up. It's very fitting because Amaziah, as we saw, who was in Israel, another prophet, said the same thing to Amos. Amos, come on. Why do you give us bad news? Everything seems to be going very well. Stop saying these negative things. I'm sick of hearing the negative, negative, negative. It's not that bad. Just go back south where you belong. Hopefully. For you optimists that are out there. Amos will give you pause. That it's not simply about keeping the status quo that matters in life. But it's rather seeking the Lord. And that might be even analyzing things that you might think are not wrong. But behind it are built on the wrong foundation. Okay, I've talked to the optimists, those that don't like to hear bad news. Now let's talk to the pessimists, right? That's really what this passage is for. It's for the pessimists. And you know, we're in American culture. And I don't know about you, I, this is the culture that I know. And optimism is what rules us as Americans, I think. We are a hopeful nation. We're not like the British, right? They're always pessimistic. We ran away from them to forge our own way, right? But I feel like optimism has taken a hit the past eight months in America. Am I right? That even the most optimistic person among us 
we are a little scared. We're worried. We've turned into pessimists. I've actually been surprised when some statements I've heard from the most optimistic people. Dread for the future of our nation. Worrying if the best days of America are behind us. I want to speak to you this morning. I hope the word will speak to you. You remember that thing I said at the beginning of this passage? I said, you don't want to hear from the word. I don't think you really want to hear what Amos says. To the pessimists, I want to say to you today, I wonder if some of you want to hear the good news and the promise and the hope that God offers. That some of us wonder, is there any restoration for us? Is there any reversal for us? Is there any promise of goodness in the midst of all of this? But this is what God leaves us with. Hope. I'm going to argue this. I'm sure people can argue it against me, but I'll say this. I think the most shocking roar from this book of Amos is not God's judgment against Israel, but it's instead that he restores Israel. The most shocking thing in this book is that God would take a broken nation like Israel and use them for his glory and his light to the nations. That's the most shocking thing about this book. Let's see what it says, shall we? I think it's broken up into two sections. The idea of the day, or behold the days, is the two sections that are there. We'll see verses 11 through 12, and then verses 13 through 15. So let's look at verses 11 and 12 first. And here we see at the beginning, in that day. Now when we hear those words in Amos, it might cause us to shudder. Because we have heard these words over before. And when Amos talked about, the Lord talked about that day, it was not always good. It was actually never good. It was fleeing. It was wailing. It was a darkening of the earth. It was young people fainting. That's the picture that we have seen of that day. But now we see a different picture. We see a picture of a raising up of building, of repairing. Earlier we saw it was Israel is to be fallen and no more to rise. But now we see that on this day, Israel will be able to raise up, that it is not fallen. Specifically, it talks about this, the booth of David. Some of us wonder, what is a booth? Well, a booth were these kind of shack things that the Israelites made when they were in the wilderness before they went into the land. They would spend time in those shacks. In fact, in the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would actually go back out of their houses and go outside and live in these for a week long to celebrate what they did in the wilderness. Now, we might wonder why would we want to restore these kind of booths, these shacks? These don't seem like good things to restore. I think there's two reasons the word booth is used here. One, 
there might have been confusion if he said the house of David. Because you've got to remember, David came from the south, from the tribe of Judah. And if he said the house of David, it might have felt for the Israelites that they were talking about Judah and not them, the ten northern tribes. I think using the booth of David make them realize back to the time of the wilderness that this was actually for all of them, the north and the south, the restoration of all of Israel. Second, I believe the word booth is used because this is the true picture of what the north looks like. It's not a house, it's not a temple, although they think they're doing well, it's actually a broken down shack. And here, the Lord is saying, I'm taking what you are, and I'm going to make you into a house, into a temple, into what it was like in David's day. But even more than that, as I promised David, as we read at the the call to worship, David will have a kingdom that will never end. And this is what is being brought back even for Israel, who stands in judgment. I find the latter part of verse 11 very interesting. And rebuild it as in the days of old. A lot of people scold, maybe you, they scold me. Don't look back to the old days. We shouldn't look back to how it was back in the day. But here it says it's okay to look back. To look back, Israel, to those days of feasting and rejoicing. The times that David was king and Israel was at a good place. This is the time of the beauty of Israel. What God is pointing out is wrong in Israel is what they were doing at this time is that they had their feasts, they had their buildings, they had all those things at the time of David, but the one thing that they were not bringing with them was the Lord himself. And that was evidence in the way that they were not caring for certain segments of the population. So God is saying, I won't get back to the place where you were honoring me, you were seeking me. There's nothing wrong with nostalgia. But it needs to be under a foundation, or on a foundation, of me. So I was on the phone uh, with a friend uh, just a couple weeks ago. No one you know, no one in the city or anything like that. And he uh, had been posting some things on Facebook that I thought were kind of egregious. And were harsh. So I made a phone call. Instead of posting back on Facebook, I called him. You can do that. You know that? There are phones. Young, young people, there are phones that you can call. They're not just for texting. Okay? You can call. Okay? So I called him. And I really just ask some questions. What's going on? Why these things? He's a Christian. And we kind of got to the heart of the matter. He says, I'm worried for my grandkids that they will not have the opportunities that I've had growing up in the United States. I'm scared. I'm fearful that American life is not going to be the way it used to be. He 
we talked about this. I challenged him. I said, I, those things that you desire, the things that you loved growing up, those are not bad things. But I do wonder if you are trying to build on a wrong foundation for your grandkids and for others in America. That it's okay to say anything you want to, to go to any length, to hate your enemies, to blaspheme against others so that America will be back to the way that you pictured it. White picket fences are fine. Sweet tea is amazing. Those moments are wonderful. But let us not forget, they are just glimpses of the restored kingdom to come. And the ends do not justify the means. That our desire to get back to where we think we were at any cost is not living the way we should. And that is what Israel was doing. Israel was not seeking the Lord, but simply the blessings of the Lord while ignoring the Lord altogether. Well, the reversal does not end there. Here we see that there is a reversal when it comes to the other nations. Again, this is bookends. This is what poetry does. How it begins is how it ends. And at the beginning of the book of Amos, we saw the oracles against the nations. And it started with all the other nations furthest away from Israel, and then got to Israel as the main target. And it was saying God was judging all these other nations. And one nation, specifically that was getting judged pretty harshly, was Edom. One, because it had done some really wrong things. And second, some of the other nations around it were actually causing Edom to go into slavery and, and killing their king and things like that. So I think maybe it starts with Edom here to realize that even this nation that was getting the brunt of it, even they will be restored under Israel. But the main point is this, that when it started with the other nations in judgment and left the greatest judgment at the beginning to Israel, now it starts with the other nations, it starts with Israel first, to restore the other nations. See, here is the reversal. While God judged Israel the most harshly at the beginning of the book, now God says the day will come when Israel will be the restoration for all the nations. Some of you might wonder, what is being talked about here? Well, I have good news for you. We're going to be going in the book of Acts, starting in January, and in Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, when all of these church leaders, the early church leaders, got together, guess what passage they referenced? Verse 12. And what did they say? The church, now going to all the nations like Ephesus and to the Roman Empire and to all these different places, now the church is living what we said in Amos by going to the Gentiles. You see, God was using the new Israel, the church, to give his message and to be a light to all of the world. 
Now that sounds really good. I think some of us forget this. We kind of just live and breathe this air of church culture, and we don't realize what's come before us. For most of us here, not all of us, most of us come from Germanic backgrounds. Some of us, like myself, I come from an Anglo-Saxon background. Do you know what they used to call us back in the day? Barbarians. You know that? My ancestors used to kill the Celts in other tribes. We like doing that. But you know who came? Some monks. They came to the British Isles. And you know what they came with? The gospel. Some of us don't realize the change that we have seen in our world, in the Western world. It didn't simply come from the Enlightenment. It didn't come from Westernism. It didn't come from whiteness. It came from our ancestors being changed by the gospel. Today, some of us can lose sight of that. In one sense, we forget where we've come from. In the other sense, we think that we are all that there is. Do you realize where Christianity is growing the most is not here? It's actually the Southern Hemisphere. And by 2025, there will be more Christians in Africa than in the United States and Europe combined. Sometimes we get stuck in our myopic vision as Americans to realize the gospel is bigger than our nation. And in fact, the gospel is on the move to other nations more than just ours. And sometimes we sit and we whine about our days, how they pass us by, when we realize it hasn't passed the Lord by because he's still on the move in our world. He is working in China. He is working in Brazil, in Argentina, in Chile. He's working in Botswana. He's working in Tanzania. He's working in Cameroon. He's working in the Congo. And we sit and we lament our own problems when we realize that God, is, his light is going to all the nations and the church is bigger than the United States. And for those of you that go, I don't know if I believe in Christianity, I don't know if this is true, I hope you might take a look. This book in Amos is pointing to what has happened over the past 3,000 years. God has been true to his promise. He has not forgotten the world. He has done it through his people of Israel and then his son, Jesus Christ, that this is the number one religion in the world because his promises are real. This isn't just another meta-narrative among all the meta-narratives of the world that we just can believe what we want to, and this is fine. No, this is the message of history, that history will come to culmination when the Lord will arrive again, and he will judge the heavens and the earth and all the nations. And where will we be? Well, it keeps going. 
verse 13 through 15. We saw in that day, now we say, behold, the days are coming. This phrase was used before in chapter 8, and again, it might cause us to shudder, because when that word was used again, it was talking about a day that there would be a famine. But now the Lord is talking about a day that there would be not a famine, but a feast. You see, what was happening here and what it's explaining is that in April and in May, there was a harvest in Israel. You would harvest the the wheat and the barley. And then in October and November, they would plow uh, the fields again and they would sow for the next year. What this passage is describing is that the harvest was so great in April and May that they had not stopped collecting the harvest by September and October and November. It was so plentiful, they had still not collected all that had grown from before. This feast is so great that the grapes are so great that it uses poetic image that what would happen, yes, there would be sweet wine dripping from all the hills. They shall all flow with it. And this is a contrast from earlier in Amos when it talked about those that were wealthy and the elite of society were drinking wine by the bowls. But now it says, no, everyone will partake in this. It will be for all of Israel, all of the people. And then in verses 14 through 15, and man, remember, in earlier in Amos, it talked about that the people would be uprooted, they'd be taken from the land, that Assyria would come in 30 years, and Israel would never be the same, the ten tribes, they'd be taken from the land. But here in verses 14 through 15, it says, they shall never again be uprooted. That this should be a firm kingdom that shall last forever. So when is this? What is this talking about? Well, I personally believe this is talking about eschatology, that it is true in one sense of Israel when it returns to the land and um, later out of exile. It also is talking about, uh, again, when Christ will come and the fruition there. And also, lastly, in the last day, in the new heavens and the new earth. I think most clearly we're seeing it in the new heavens and the new earth. We've been reading the book of Ephesians, some of us. And Ephesians 1 says this. You might remember reading this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So here is, again, the picture of all of Amos. For nine and a half chapters, we have had judgment. And we have said, this seems like bad news. But the thing is, it was foreshadowing. Foreshadowing that the day would come, that there would be someone from the seed of Israel that would take all of our judgment upon himself on the cross. He would take the justice that we deserve. He would be the righteousness that we should be. 
that all of that first nine and a half chapters, all that judgment is pointing to what Christ would do so that what we would be partakers in him, that we might have the inheritance that is mentioned here in the last verses of chapter nine. That we are partakers in Christ, in the inheritance, in the new heavens and earth that is talked about here. And this is a glimpse that God is faithful in his promises to those that belong to him. Okay, that's great, Dan. Thank you for all that theological lessons and all that Christology and stuff like that. And, but for me, my experience right now, it seems really brutal. I wonder if God really loves us. I feel beat up, maybe in my life, maybe what I'm experienced during these last eight months. I feel disciplined by the Lord. Does God really true in his promises? Does he really care for me? We have a 2000 Toyota Sienna. You know what's fun about minivans? Not much. But uh, what one fun thing is, there's a sliding door, right? That's a fun thing, okay? And for my youngest, the sliding door is fun, Claire. And on the 2000 Sienna, she likes to hang on to the side of the door and just slide, you know, kind of back and forth. Even though Aaron and I kindly and gently reminded her, please do not do this. This is not good for this old car. But it continued, and she broke off the door handle. Okay? Now, you talk about the wrath of Amos, right, of the Lord. That sometimes was a little bit of my wrath after seeing the door handle broken off. And Clary, of course, was very upset and not happy about this whole experience. She said she was sorry. We forgave her, all those things. Even though that now, every time we want to get inside the car, we have to open the front door, right? And reach around and press the button to open the back. We're not fixing that thing, okay? I'm sorry. It's more money probably to fix that door handle than the car is worth, okay? And for Clary, it must be at times, oh, man, I broke the door handle, and now every time they open it is a sign of what I have done. But here's the thing. Because Claire did that, does that mean she can't ride in the car? That she's done with family trips? No more going to Dairy Queen with us, Claire. No more going to vacation with us. No more doing any of this. You're out of the family. And that door handle is a symbol of you're gone. No. She still gets to be a part of the family. Christian. Every week, you come and you see what you've done. Your sin, your injustice, your lack of righteousness has nailed your Savior upon the cross. But what does God say? Get out! You don't belong here! How dare you sit in these seats? No, he says, come, feast on me. Be a part of my community. Be part of my church. Let the grapes and the wine drip from the hills so that you may drink a plenty. 
and let you feast with me forever. I love the last part of this passage. Says the Lord your God, and this is the capitals of Lord Yahweh. Every time Yahweh and God is mentioned together, Elohim together, it's always before with the host, meaning the armies, the military, coming with judgment. But then at the end of this whole passage, there is no more hosts. Do you know why? Because he's come to us with his grace. He's come to us with himself. Ron Greer was allowed outside at Fort Leavenworth Prison if he would sit outside and listen to a preacher. Roger Staubach came one time to Fort Leavenworth to preach. Ron sat in the furthest place back so he wouldn't be with those white swine, as he said. He didn't listen to a thing that the preacher said. But as, as he was going back into the jail, a young white man, probably no more than 18 years old, he said he was very scrawny and he looked scared as ever. He came up to Ron and he said, can I pray with you? And for some reason, Ron said, I guess I'll pray with this swine. And right there, that young man prayed with Ron. And that night, that prayer was a catalyst. That Ron, in jail with his anger, with his hair falling out, with constant headaches, he went to the Lord and he said, Lord, if you are the God of the universe, I give my life to you. Change me. And right there in that jail at Fort Leavenworth, in 1975, Ron Greer came in the inheritance of the Lord. And after that, he got involved with Chuck Colson with Prison Fellowship and ministered in jail after jail, even jails here in Wisconsin. When he had his own home and his own family, he took ex-cons, 24 ex-cons through the years, and brought them into his home and taught them the gospel and helped them go from jail into society. It was that same African-American man that ministered to me, this young man, and gave me a job out of college and taught me many things. Someone that he used to call a swine, now he called a brother and a friend. You see, restoration and reversal is what God has given to each of us. So that we might show forth a kingdom of justice and righteousness to a waiting world. I hope as we close Amos, 
you will not say, oh, that was a lot of bad news. That was a lot of judgment. That was a lot of repentance. Instead, you would say, that was the catalyst to restore me and to revive me, to go out into the world and love the least and the lost, even if it means sacrificing things in my own life. That we would be changed as a church. That we would be restored in this time of oppression and virus and tensions. That we would be renewed and that we would come from this time made like gold to our community and to those around us. Let that be us. And let Amos be good news in our hearts.